So we're going to read from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35, and it should be on the screen behind me as well. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Good to have you here. Big welcome if you're visiting you. Thanks for being here. Hope you enjoy City Light today with us. Um, we are in, as Rob said, in a series, uh, Mark's Gospel, Mark's account of Jesus' life walking through uh, what he did when he, he was here on earth. We've called this series King and Cross, looking at Jesus being both the King and heading the cross to be the Saviour of the world. Uh, we're going to jump into Mark 3, as Rob read for us. Before I do, I just want to pray for you and me as we look at God's Word. So let me talk to God for us on, on your behalf. Father, we want to thank you that, that you are real, that you are here this morning in this building with us. We want to thank you for each person that is here, each person that you love deeply and you have made in your image and, and we know right now that you speak, that you're alive. Jesus, you are on the throne, ruling over all things. And uh, wherever our head and heart is at this morning, wherever we're feeling, whatever uh, we are thinking, sitting here right now, we want to pray, Lord, that you would speak to us where we are at. What we need now is more of your voice in our lives, reminding us of your glory, your goodness, and your love for us as we are. So, Lord, prepare our hearts as you speak and use me as your servant uh, to say just what you want to say for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm the, uh, I'm the youngest of three. I'm the youngest in my family, and I've often felt like there are a lot of good perks about being the youngest in a family. Uh, it's always said the youngest is more spoilt, and parents give them more freedoms than their older siblings. Definitely my, my story. Loved it. I really enjoyed it. Another perk is... Uh, when you're the youngest, you always have uh, someone, your older siblings, uh, looking after you, looking out for you, someone who is big, bigger and stronger and tougher on your side. And that was my experience going to school when I was in kindergarten. I had an older sibling in year five and year six, so school was fine. Went into high school, year seven, I had a brother who was in year 12. And so he was the big, tough year 12er who would look after me, protect me, and it gives you confidence. Uh, to, uh, it gave me confidence to go to school. 
I remember um, when, I, uh, when I started first playing, I finished high school and I first started playing the sport of rugby union and uh, I was playing against full-grown men. And I remember I was in a competition that was known for being really rough and tough and it was a competition that was based in sort of greater western Sydney uh, and so you'd play teams from the west, from the Blue Mountains, all over the place and I remember driving to games and turning up and seeing the opposition, they'd be huge, fully grown men and uh, they were in for a tough game, and a lot of them were from the Pacific Islands, and they just wanted to destroy you. That was their aim for the game, just destroy you. They loved the physical nature of the game. And they'd have their home supporters there on the sideline just yelling at you and just giving you a mouthful the whole game. And if you got hit by one of them, they'd all cheer and clap and love that you were on the ground. Um, uh, it was full on. I don't know, one year though, we started our pre-season training, and there was talk that we had a new player. And his name was Lonnie. And everyone said, Lonnie's coming, Lonnie's coming. Anyway, Lonnie turned up and his leg was as wide as both my legs together. That's how I'm like, Lonnie's here. And uh, he turned up and he was, he was not muscly, he was just square. Like a Lego man. You know, Lego head, like just square. Like he was just built like that. That, that was Lonnie. And he was super quiet. And I, talk, I spoke to him and I found he was from Tonga. And then eventually we found out that he played for Tonga in the Rugby World Cup a few years before. I'm like, wow, Lonnie's on our side, right? It was going to be amazing. I saw him play and he was incredible. He, uh, he was a guy uh, that when you have Lonnie on your team, it fills you with all confidence. You have no fear of your opponents, no matter how big and tough they were. Lonnie had you covered on the field. Uh, you were in the ball, he was right behind you, cleaning out and having him with you made you felt safe and secure. He was a game changer. You know, we, we are looking at uh, Mark chapter 8. Uh, sorry, we're looking at uh, Mark chapter 3, and the first eight chapters is all about Mark showing us who Jesus is. As Rob said before, it's all about Jesus. And we see here from Mark 1 1, the first sentence out of Mark's mouth really is describing who Jesus is. It says it there that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Mark wants us to know that Jesus is the long-awaited king who has come to save. That is who he is. And his kingdom is God's kingdom that he is bringing to earth. And then for the next eight chapters, Mark is all about trying to show you who Jesus is and filling that fully out for us. And Mark wants us to know who Jesus is so we worship him rightly, worship him as he deserves. And so there's no misunderstanding and so that when we worship Him and, 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 and follow Him, it also shapes how we live our lives. Now, I'm sure uh, you've seen at the moment uh, the great toilet paper shortage that is plaguing our city at the moment, right? I'm sure you've seen the countless amounts of photos on social media and in the news of empty shelves where toilet paper used to live that are no longer. It's just empty. And I, I, you know, you think about this and think, what, what's going on? What's, the, what's the, the, the feeling or thought behind this that is happening? And you read newspaper sites, what's going on, the coronavirus and how serious it is and how it's going to come and wipe us all out. My kids come home from school, Dad, the coronavirus, it's coming to Sydney. It's coming to get us. It's like this army coming to attack us. And we need to go to the shops and bunker down in our bunkers and get canned food and toilet paper because we're going to get destroyed by coronavirus. And yes, it's serious. And yes, it is, it is sad that people have died from it. But it also seems to be driven by a fear. It's this huge fear behind this dread, this panic of this virus that is coming. And I wonder how much 
I wonder how much would change if we knew this King, this King Jesus, who is powerful, to speak into these fears that, not just the coronavirus, the fears that we all have. I think often we're a, we're, a, we're a people, we're a culture that are driven by fear and worry and dread. We have that all in us. And I wonder how much would it change if we knew this king and truly worshipped him and truly knew his power. Wouldn't it, nice, wouldn't it be nice to live a life with no matter what came our way with confidence because you knew the powerful one. You knew the king who was on his throne. You knew what he was like and you knew what he thought of you. Just like having, having a Lonnie on your team that fills you with confidence. Don't you want to look at life and, and look at and, and experience the ups and the downs and all its uncertainty and stare fear in its face and say, hey, I know that, but I know my king. And I know what he's like. And I know his power. And I know what he thinks of me. This is why Mark is trying to show us again and again who Jesus is. This is why God wants us to know who Jesus is and the power that he has. So we worship him rightly and how it sh- then it will shape how we live in this world that is his. I want to show you this today and I'm going to try and walk you through this passage to show you this King Jesus who is powerful. And these are my three observations as we walk through chapter 3 together. We have the power, the authority and the stronger one. Let me jump into uh, sentences 7 to 12 first. We've been walking through Mark's gospel. We walk through, it's a narrative, it's a story, it's building on itself. And so last week we saw Jesus had a bunch of conflicts with the religious leaders of the day and the tension is rising. So much so we saw last week at sentence three, uh, chapter 3, sentence 6, the religious leaders team up with the Herodians uh, who are actually enemies, but they teamed up together to try to figure out how to destroy Jesus. Their plan was we need to now kill Jesus after what he's saying, what he's saying against us, and what he's doing. We need to destroy this man. And so this is where we are up to. And so we have in chapter 3, Mark wants to focus now on Jesus' power, but especially his battle and his power, uh, sorry, his power and his battle with the spiritual realm, the evil realm, with Satan and his evil spirits. Now I can say that, and I wonder what you think when when you hear me say that about Satan and his evil spirits, whether you think it's real or not. The Bible is pretty clear that Satan is real, evil spirits are real, and they are powerful and not to be messed with or dabbled in. And these evil spirits are opposed to Jesus and his people, and they'll do whatever it takes to destroy the church and his people. They have real power, and the Bible talks a lot about the spiritual realm. And I think living in our Western culture, we don't really talk about it a lot. Or, or, or see its tangible signs of it, and therefore we don't believe it. But the Bible is pretty clear. It doesn't make it any less powerful or real. They are real. And in this chapter, we're going to see Jesus take it on head on, in chapter 3. So let me read to you the next part of the narrative in Senate 7 to 12, and it says this. So Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. and He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed me, so all that who had disease, diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he, Jesus, strictly ordered them not to make him 
known. Jesus alludes, so you see here, he withdraws. He withdraws because the religious leaders are coming after him, so he tries to move away from them. But because of his popularity of what he's been doing, crowds follow him. And more and more people are coming to him in need of healing. And they are no longer, it says, they're waiting for Jesus to touch them. They're just flocking towards him to get a hand on him. They're rushing him to try if they think if they can just touch Jesus, they'll be healed. So Jesus says, hey, disciples, get the boat ready in case you get crushed here if it gets too crazy. But I love here that Jesus is not freaked out. He, he still stays and he heals and he cares for each individual person. And it's hard to know whether the crowds know who Jesus is or just want his healing or whatever is going on there. But we see clearly who does know who Jesus is and it's the evil spirits in 11 and 12. And when they see him, it said, they fall down and cry out to Jesus, you are the Son of God. Now, it almost seems like a nervous recognition of Jesus, this nervousness. They're falling down in fear of who he is and they're cowering before him because they know what he can do to them and his power. And they blurt out, you're the Son of God, as they say. And now this is not an act of worship or repentance. It's more an attempt of trying to, I think, disrupt Jesus' mission. They're trying to control Jesus by pronouncing his divine name, really. And Jesus, is, he said he is pacing his ministry. He knows if he reveals too early who he is and outs himself publicly, then he'll be destroyed. And so his time is not yet to die. He knows that. It's later on. And so he won't have, uh, he's the one in control, not the spirits. And so he will not let their ravings get out of control. And so he says to them, rebukes them in sentence 12 and shows his power over them and says, be quiet. And they obey. He rebukes them and says, don't speak. And they obey him, giving them strict orders, Mark says. And Jesus is showing his power over the evil spirits uh, and they obey when he speaks. I wonder for you, uh, have you ever been driving along in your car and everything's going great, you know, you get your window down, wind going through your hair if you have any, um, you know, enjoying the warm weather, listening to music, um, relaxed. And then you're driving along and you look in your mirror and you see a police car behind you. What feeling comes over you at that moment? What do you feel at that moment? I know for me, everything tenses up. Relaxing, I'm not relaxed anymore, I'm on edge, I'm... I'm I, my casual drive turns a bit of fear because I'm being followed by a police car. Now, you know, I, I'm not driving over the speed limit. That's a good law-abiding citizen. Uh, I'm not doing anything illegal. But as soon as I see the police car directly behind me, I feel very much on edge. Like I'm going to get in trouble. I'm much more tense and I've got to focus on checking my blind spots and making sure that I've stopped, in far, stopped uh, uh, far enough from the car in front and making sure I do everything right. And why is that? Well, because the police have power. They have power. It's their job to enforce the law, to enforce the law over, over people. That's their job. And it's a right to respect that honor, to honor that power that they have. And this is the same here with the evil spirits. They see Jesus and they fall in fear of him because he's the powerful one. They recognize his power. Even though the religious leaders and the crowds don't know who he is, they see who he is, and they don't want to submit to him, and therefore they are scared of his power that he has. They see and recognize rightly Jesus as the powerful one. Mark continues on with the next story of power over the evil realm. And we see this next section where Jesus calls his 12 disciples or apostles. The 12 disciples, 12 apostles. 
And these are the inner circle charged with this job of, of preaching the kingdom. And they had this huge task of being the, the beginnings of the church. Let me show you this. Uh, Mark 3, 13 to 19 says this, And they went up on the mountain, and he called to them those whom he desired, and, he, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name uh, Bo- Boanerges, or something like that, that is the son of thunder, Andrew and, the, and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, whom betrayed him. Here Jesus chooses his 12 followers, his 12 inner circle in a sense. And I love if you just sit and think on this for a minute. I love uh, whom he chooses here. Uh, he hasn't gone and chosen his best 12, the top 12, or auditioned everyone and said, these are the best I've got, I'm going to choose these 12. Not at all. Now think about uh, who Jesus chose here to be his people. And I think this gives, gives us or gives me great encouragement. He chooses a man like Peter who's so hot and cold, who regularly says dumb stuff. In a few chapters' time, Jesus will say, hey, Peter, who am I? And he's like, uh, you are the Christ, the King. And Jesus is like, well done. And then not long after, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to die on the cross to save, to save the world. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. And always says, hey, Jesus, listen up. That's not going to happen, man. I, I got this. Maybe I should be team captain. You take a, take a seat, Jesus. I got this now, right? And you think, he just, he just called him to Christ. And then Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of, of this, of God, on your mind. Peter's called Satan by, by Jesus. That's no small thing. You know, when Jesus uh, is, is arrested, his, his apostles all flee and run from him, betray him, abandon him in his moment of need. Peter's confronted three times, asking if he knows Jesus, and three times he says, no way, don't know the guy. I have no idea who he is, lying. This is who Jesus calls his apostles to be. Then you get James and John. Uh, John wrote most of the, uh, a lot of the New Testament. And then a little later on, you get James and John arguing over who will sit at the right hand of Jesus in power. They want some of the glory. They want some of the power. And I wonder how the other ten felt about James and John going and asking Jesus for power. It's almost like Survivor, pulling, them pulling a blindside or something going on there. The tribe, I don't know what's going on. But these are the sort of people that God calls to himself as apostles. People who are a work in progress. They need God's help to guide them. They're not the impressive ones, not those who have it all together, but those who admit they need God's help. Uh, these are God's people who works in and through. And I find this an encouragement as I think about who these 12 are that he chooses. But you notice he gives these 12 a task. Two things he gives them. To go and preach and then go on to continue on the message of Jesus to the world. That's what they're called to do. Sharing the life-changing news of God's love for all people shown in Jesus' death and resurrection to save them from sin and death and from hell. That's what they're called to do. But they're also given the authority to cast out demons. I think this is the part of, of Jesus trying to give them uh, to authenticate their message by showing this sign or this miracle they can also do. And I think, it's, I think it's interesting to think here about that Jesus has the authority to cast out demons. Now, with his power, he can give that power to the disciples, to the apostles, to also cast out demons, to also have authority over these evil spirits. He's transferring his power onto them as well, showing his power to do so. Jesus is the powerful one. My brother uh, has two children. I have a niece and a nephew. 
uh, Asha, a, cute, uh, a, a five-year-old girl, and a cute little boy named Daniel. Now, they're gorgeous, uh, five and three. And Daniel is the youngest one. He is full of energy, full of fun, 24-7, constantly. Here's a photo of Daniel, which sums him up really nicely. That's him there. Uh, he is, he's on the go, 24-7, always up for fun. Now, as I said, Daniel has an older sister whose name is Asha, and she is the oldest sibling in every single way. Uh, I talked to my brother about, uh, about the family, and uh, he said that pretty much Daniel has two mums, Asha and, uh, and his mum. I've been out for dinner with him, and I hear Asha often say, Daniel, Daniel, stop that. Come sit down, Daniel, and just always parenting him all the time. My brother says, he often hears Asha say things like, Daniel, I'll count to three, or uh, Daniel, do you want to go to your room? <laughs> and it's just that, this, uh, that um, and here's a photo, I think, of typifies of what they're like. This is just the older sibling, and Daniel just wanting to go crazy at any moment he can. That's what happens. I love this verse. It summarizes him so well. It's like Daniel has three parents. The problem is here is that uh, obviously my brother and sister-in-law haven't given Asher the job uh, to be Daniel's parent or discipline him. That's not her job. It's, it's theirs. And I'm sure you've experienced something similar uh, with someone taking authority when it hasn't been given. Oh, yeah, it moves too. You can, you can do it again. Do it again. Can you do it again. <laughs> See how it sums it up? Yeah, right. Now you can hit the next slide so we don't get distracted anymore. <laughs> I've watched that about a million times. Just, just keep pressing it over and over again. And I'm sure you've experienced this where, um, where uh, you've had someone in the workplace, especially, who hasn't been, uh, who takes authority over you and hasn't been given to them by anyone else. And they assume yeah, they're your boss when they're actually the same as you at work. Someone takes that role uh, of power and authority over you. But unless that is being given to you, given to them by someone with power above, they cannot do that. Power needs to be given from above. And this is what Jesus does here. This is Jesus giving power to his apostles because he is the, he's the powerful one. He can do that. He's handing them power over the evil spirits. This is what Mark again is showing us, that Jesus is the powerful one with all authority over the evil realm. And I want to show you this one more time. I'm going to show you the story that Rob read for us. And this is the story that Mark records for us of Jesus' interaction with his family and the Jewish leaders. Here we get Jesus confronted by two different groups. One strikingly by his family, his flesh and blood, and by the Jewish leaders. And here we read from his family. They come to him and they are convinced that Jesus is out of his mind. He's lost his mind. He's crazy. Things that he's saying that they're hearing going, hang on, we've known you for 30 years, Jesus. That's not who you are. You're crazy. You've lost it all. And so they want to come and take him away uh, to stop embarrassing himself, but also, I think, from embarrassing them. Uh, Jesus' craziness does not reflect well on his family. Uh, but then we read Jesus really redefining family here. Jesus knows who he is and why he came, and he won't let his family uh, disrupt his mission, his life-saving, life-giving mission. And in sentences 33 to 35, Jesus redefines family, and he says his family are those who do the will of God. And his real family are those who are not ashamed of him. It's those who recognize who he is, and they obey. That's who Jesus says family is. His family are those who follow, who trust. That's family. That's, that's Jesus' family. That's God's family. That's why we can call uh, Christian brothers and sisters, uh, sorry, fellow Christians, brothers and sisters. That's why here, this is family gathering. This is a family gathering. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. It also means we can call God our heavenly dad, and Jesus is our brother, which is a crazy thought. 
This is what Jesus is saying here, and we'll come back to that a little later on. But let me show you the interaction with Jesus and these Jewish leaders, these religious leaders here. It says this, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem are saying, He's possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan rises up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then indeed he may plunder the house. Then Jesus said, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will ne- has, uh, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they, were, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. The religious leaders here are trying to discredit Jesus, saying, hey, he's crazy, he's actually from the devil. That's his power. He's from Satan himself. And Jesus says, your logic is stupid. It doesn't work. Why would Satan be divided against himself and drive out his own spirits? That would be a kingdom divided against itself. And Jesus is saying, if I'm from Satan, just let me go. And we'll fall, it'll fall apart in the end. Just let me go. Jesus is saying how silly it is. Then sentence 27 is the key again in showing us Jesus' power. You see what it says there. He's saying, I'm not from Satan. I've defeated him. And I'm showing you that by I can cast out his workers. I can cast out his demons, his, his evil spirits. Because they're obeying me. They're fearing me in power. And he's, he illustrates by saying that no one can enter a, a house unless they tie, up, they tie up and defeat the person who owns the house. Jesus is saying, I've come and I've defeated him. I've bound him up and, I, and I've tied him up. And now I'm showing you I've defeated him by casting out his evil spirits. That is who I am. I'm more powerful than him. I'm the powerful one who has defeated the strong person. He has come and he, is, he has all authority as the risen king, as the powerful one. He says, I'm the one who who has power to defeat Satan and sin and death. By my death and resurrection, I've conquered it once and for all. And for those who follow me are free. We no longer need to fear. We are free. This is Jesus' power. And Jesus is the powerful king, Mark, is showing us who deserves worship as such. And then Jesus warns the leaders. Sentence 28 to 30, have a look at that. And he says, uh, he says, uh, whoever, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit is guilty of an eternal sin, the unforgivable sin. Now, I don't know if you've heard this before, you think, what is that? Have I done it? I'm, I'm sure I've done it, whatever it is. I think it's interesting to look at the text and what it's actually saying here in context. What does this mean? Like in the context of Mark, in the context of chapter 3, we've heard in chapter 3 that the religious leaders' hearts were hard. Sentence 30. We hear he gives a little clue there as well, but it seems to be saying to attribute the work of the Holy Spirit, to draw people to come to see Jesus, to attribute that work from the Spirit to the work of the devil, and to reject that work is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. We know from the Bible that it says, only the work of the Holy Spirit, through his work, we can come to know Jesus. So to reject his work means that you can't come to see Jesus. You can't know him. You won't accept him. Therefore, you can't be forgiven because it's only in him that we can be forgiven from, from sin. And so, so uh, Jesus is warning the religious leaders of, you reject this, you will not be forgiven. You are done. And Jesus is showing here the serious consequence of misunderstanding who he is. You don't get who I am, you're going to miss out. There are serious 
consequences. Mark has been trying to show us here in chapter 3 that Jesus is the powerful one who has all authority. You know, as I wonder if we sit here and we think about this and think about who do we think Jesus is? I wonder how, I wonder how you see him and therefore how you relate to him. I think the two are linked. How you relate to Jesus shows what you think of him and how what you think of him will affect how you relate to him. The two sit together. You know, I wonder if this is how you see Jesus. Baby Jesus. A bit needy. Wants to be noticed. Hugged him, wants to be hugged now and again. Not a lot of power. Doesn't command a lot of reverence. And therefore, if you see them that way, you're not going to go to them a lot. Because they can't do very much. You acknowledge them now and again. But you're not going to come to them a lot. Or this one. Handsome Jesus. Not very fearsome looking, a bit holier than thou, staring at you a lot. You feel like you have, you, you've let them down constantly and you can't live up to the, his expectation. So you're not going to want to approach him um, and, uh, with what's going on or how you feel and you probably think they won't understand me anyway because they're so perfect. Or maybe it's uh, busy Jesus. Jesus can look busy. Keep your head down. He's busy. I'm busy. Um, uh, when he's looking at me, I've got to keep working hard to show that I actually am uh, doing what he wants me to do. But I've got to make sure I fix myself up before he comes because I know that he's going to get me in trouble if I'm not busy enough or not working hard enough. He has a lot going on, so I won't bother him, and I hope he doesn't bother me either. But I've got to work it out myself. I'm on my own. Or maybe this, homeboy Jesus. Right? That Jesus is my homeboy. We're bros, Jesus and I. Uh, he says some things, don't take it too seriously, I can pick and choose what he says, I don't have to take it too serious, uh, don't get too stressed about your walk with Jesus, he does his thing, I do mine, we're going to be cool in the anyway, we're bros, he loves me, I love him sometimes, we're good, right? I know his grace, he's forgiven me, we're great. Homeboy Jesus. How you see Jesus is going to affect how you relate and live your life in light of him. Now we can have a bit of a chuckle of those, but I think we can all form the trap of each of those. And it affects how we worship Jesus and how we live as his followers. As I said, in Mark's gospel, he's been banging away at who Jesus is. This is what he's like. This is who he is. This is who he is over and over again. Wanting us to see his power, his glory, his lordship, and then worship him rightly as we approach him. And we see here it affects how you see Jesus affects how you live. And the Bible is clear on who Jesus is. Just to finish up, I just want to try and, I want to try and show you, I want to try and flood you with what the Bible says Jesus is like, looking at his power. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to throw up a bunch of verses on the, on the screen here. You want to look at these later on, write them down. I can post them later on, whatever you want to do. But I want to run through these. These are just a handful that I've just selected of who Jesus is. All right, so this is who Jesus is. We have Daniel 7, where it's Son of Man, the Son of Man image. It says Jesus has all authority, all glory, all power. Uh, and right now, right now, he's ruling over all people, all nations, and every, one day, every tribe, language, and tongue will worship him forever. Daniel 7. Colossians 1, 15 to 20 says, Jesus created all things by him and through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Matthew 25, 31 to 34, he sits in judgment over all people throughout all of history. Matthew 28, 18 says, all authority, that's all authority in heaven on earth is, earth is in his hand. Ephesians 1, 20 to 23, that he is far above any rule, any power, any dominion forever and ever, and God has placed all things under his feet. 
John 1, 1 to 5, Jesus was there in the beginning. He is God and nothing is made without him. Hebrews 1, 1 to 5, that Jesus is now on his throne, ruling, sustaining, reigns over all people. That's a handful of passages from the Bible that is true, that speaks of who Jesus is right now. Then you can jump into Revelation, which is just littered with this stuff. Revelation 1, 12 to 18 says, Jesus is the first and the last. He lives forever and he is the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. Revelation 5, 18 to 14 says, Jesus is worthy as the, as the one who has been slain, the lamb who has died and risen again of glory, power, wealth, wisdom, strength, because he has defeated sin and death once and for all. Revelation 12 says, Jesus is the one who's defeated Satan. And you read this battle and it's nothing. This, this, the war armies come together and Jesus speaks and it's done because he's the powerful one who reigns and rules. My favorite one, Revelation 19. If you read any, read this one. Revelation 19. Jesus is the rider of the white horse who comes in power with the armies of heaven following him. He rules with an iron scepter and on his thigh is tattooed this, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's this awesome picture of not this baby Jesus, but this ruling, conquering king who every knee will worship. Revelation 20, 22, 12, uh, 12 to 13 says, He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He says, Behold, I am coming soon. This is Jesus. This is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the Jesus who God says, This is my son who you should worship with reverence, with fear, submitting to him as Lord of lords and King of kings. This is him. This is the one who sits on his throne right now. He's awesome in power and glory, but at the same time, he is full of love and grace and compassion. This is the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus. And he invites people to come to him as they are, saying, I'm your savior, I'm your brother, I'm your friend. Mark 3, remember Mark 3.35 says, we are family. That's so incredible. You, you can call your, your brother is the one who sits on the throne, who is judge, who rules, who sustains all things. There's no one more with more power, with more authority, who has more control than, your, than a brother. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's, that's, that's what you have. That's an amazing truth of the gospel. I would say if you, if you understand, if you sit with these texts and then remember that I can approach him because of his grace and I can come to him as I am, broken and needy, asking for help, he will say, come, I love you as you are. And I think that changes everything. It changes how we live and how we operate. It changes what we live for. It changes how we, how we interact and deal with our fears and our worries. As I said before, I feel like our world thrives off fear. I'd say what our worrying world needs to hear is that Jesus is king and he's on his throne and he invites all people to come to him and know his rest and his peace. What our world also needs to see in us, people who belong to him, are people who are coming to him, who are resting in his grace, who know how much he loves us, who invites us to come. And I want to urge you, I want to invite you to keep knowing this powerful one for yourself. I would say, don't, don't just know Jesus through the Sunday sermon. Don't just know Jesus through singing some songs or, or through a Bible study on a week, weeknight. Know Jesus for yourself. He's inviting you to come into his presence, to know him and know his peace and his love and his grace and his power and his authority. He's inviting you personally to come for yourself. I want to encourage you to know him, to run to him and worship him alone as your king.
This is Jesus. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we want to thank you so much for King Jesus who is on his throne right now. And Lord, for many of us who have distorted views or who have who've gone in and out of how we see Jesus, we want, to, we, want to, we want to sit and know his power and his authority this morning and also know his love and his grace. Help us to not treat Jesus as, as our homeboy or as the handsome one or, or the baby Jesus or whatever it is. Help us to see your picture, Jesus, your real, the real identity of who you are. For those who don't know you yet, Jesus, we want to pray that you would reveal, uh, reveal yourself to, that, to us. Show us that you're worthy. Show us that you, you love us beyond what we understand as we are uh, with all our thoughts and worries, that you love us just as we are right now. And you would not love us any more and cannot love us any less. We know we need to fix ourselves up. Your grace is sufficient. Your grace is enough for us. So help us to come to you with all our fears, knowing that you are good, you are in control, and you love us. We pray it all in your name. Amen.